to the Web 2.0 Show with your hosts, Josh Owens and Chris Saylor. We're a show about the new web, the latest thoughts and technology behind internet development and content delivery. Welcome to episode 14. We have Sean Inman with us from SeanInman.com. He also wrote Haverment.com. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Sean, and uh, where you're from, some work you've done in the past, that, that sort of thing. Okay. Currently, I live in, in Baltimore, Maryland. I'm originally from Boston, and I went to school at the Savannah College of Art and Design. My undergrad, my only grad, as I call it, was in graphic design. I was originally studying to be a print designer, and I wanted to, like, my whole thing was, like, I wanted to do CD covers. Because uh, I'm kind of a musician, and you know, you're a teenager sitting in your bedroom. Yeah, Dan Cedarholm uh, did the same thing. Yeah, yeah, CD covers. probably. I think I remember reading that. Um, and uh, well, at the Savannah College of Art and Design, I had a, a history of graphic design professor who, during one class, he just said, you know, here we have like you know the printing press, and it was like this great revolution and everything, and then he's like, and here we have the web. Like, you want to get on the web. And so I, I kind of like took it to heart, got online, started teaching myself stuff. The college didn't have much of a web design program at the time, and so I picked up a bunch of um, O'Reilly books and just basically started picking apart HTML and, and the code that was generated by things like Dreamweaver and Go Live. get my feet wet, figure things out. And then from there, I stepped into like uh, JavaScript, and then from there, I jumped over to Flash ActionScript. And because the syntaxes were really similar, I was able to learn a lot through ActionScript, which was better documented. Colin Mook has an excellent, excellent book on action scripting. And then I was able to jump back over to JavaScript, and I was able to take what I had learned with ActionScript back to the browser. From there, I kind of just, as needs came up, I learned new technologies like PHP, MySQL. Right now, I'm kind of dabbling in Rails a bit. Previously, I've worked on a site called designalog.com, which is a collaborative, not so much a forum, it's like a, a visual forum uh, where two designers decide on a topic and then they communicate that topic visually. One person uploads a Photoshop or a flattened Photoshop document, the other person downloads it and remixes it kind of like in like a, you know, image mashup sort of way and they add their own ideas and everything. It goes back and forth for eight rounds and then there's dialogue on the side, like basically comments. It's kind of like a combination between like a general forum and uh, Koodle's Photoshop Tennis which was a big inspiration for DesignLog. DesignLog is a community, whereas Photoshop Tennis was kind of like the superstars <laughs> batting the Photoshop document back and forth. I taught myself PHP and MySQL to build DesignLog. I downloaded some open source forum software and just picked apart how they manage users and everything and got a couple books on the top, on the subject. Since then, I've become, I got introduced to web standards through Jeffrey Zeldman's book and started participating in that sort of community ended up on the CSSN Garden. I had two designs in there that eventually made their way into the CSSN Garden book that Dave Shea wrote. I nice. technical edited that. From the CSS, I, I really appreciated the idea of the separation between presentation and content, but I, I felt limited by the, the available typefaces in the browser and everything. Mm -hmm. So I worked out a technique using JavaScript and Flash to actually search the document for specific HTML elements and then pull out their text and replace it with a Flash movie which had a specific you know, non-browser typeface embedded into it right. and then pass the text back in so you could display like branded headings on your blog or whatnot. Right, kind of like Cipher. Yeah, well, it was the beginning of Cipher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it was in Flash replacement, which was actually just a, a joke. The, the 
prominent, like the, the, the way to do that previously had been to replace, uh, to kind of like push the text of that element off to the side and then put a background image in there of pre-rendered text. Mm-hmm. And that was called a Farnier Image Replacement, right. FIR. Okay. And so I kind of was like playing around with it and I anagrammed it and IFR. <laughs> and I'm like, what could I mean? Like Flash is obviously the F. And I'm like, uh, Inman, why not? And then it caught on. And, and, then, <laughs> and then Mike Davidson went on and was like a great advocate for it and yeah, yeah. ended up turning into scalable in the flash replacement. About that time, I started working on a stats program called ShortStat, which is pretty much like the open source free precursor to Mint. What got you interested in stats? Um, basically, I had been participating in communities a lot. When I started Designalog, somebody, I had a friend from college who had a friend from high school who was running a hosting company, and he donated uh, some space for Designalog because you're uploading you know, eight images per Designalog. can right. get kind of heavy. They're yeah. almost like half a meg each sometimes, depending on the detail. It just came with Webalizer installed. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of got interested in the inform- certain information that was there, mm-hmm. but the interface was atrocious. It was like you know, your default gray background and then like these rainbow graphs. <laughs> that and a lot of it was stuff that I didn't care about, like bandwidth at that time, because it was free. It was, the hosting was free, right. and what I was really interested in was how many people were coming, where they were coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like a little bit of an egotistical thing. Like, yeah. you you put something out in the world, you want to you want to you want to know that it. people are receiving you and right. responding to it. Well, we're stats junkies too, so. <laughs> <laughs> and then I tried a couple different things. I never really dab. I never really got into the, like the site counter things. I like the things that didn't have like any sort of front end appearance on your site. And I tried to reinvigorate.net, which was uh, hosted by Media Temple back in the day by another guy named Sean. I can't remember his last name. And I think he's working on a, a new hosted version of that. And it was really well designed. It was designed by the guys at We Work For Them back when they uh, they first started. And it was just it was very design-oriented. Um, it had limitations. It was only You were only able to embed it on a single page of your site, which at the time was fine for me because... You know, I hadn't gotten into web standards yet, and basically my site was a home page with an iframe, and I loaded separate content into the iframe. Oh, okay. um, so, I mean, there really was only one entry point for my site, right. so it was, it was appropriate. And then once I caught wind of all the, the whole web standards and the blogging thing, I installed movable type, and then I had multiple entry points. People would link directly to posts and everything. And so I kind of wanted a way to, to track that. So having looked at all these other... Uh, stats applications that met my needs in certain ways but fell down in others. I was able to take that and like pick and choose what I liked. And it was also another good way to kind of just, you know, dabble in like a new technology. Mm-hmm. It actually started as an integrated part of designalog.com, which I then realized, you know, I could, you know, pull this out and make it independent and install it on my other sites. And then I released it to the community and got a lot of feedback, probably because it was free and because a lot of like minded individuals want to know what's going on in their stats. I just saw Mint over there. <laughs> Distracted oh, yeah, me. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I made up. <laughs> oh, and so I released it to the community and got a lot of great feedback from like-minded individuals. Continuing to develop it with some stuff that people submitted and, and ideas that people submitted, ideas that I had based on using it over a period of time. Eventually, I started working on ShortStat 2, which was like a complete rewrite. Um, the original ShortStat was kind of just like a little pet project, see what I could do. Um, so it wasn't really designed. It was just the information I wanted. I, I pulled that out first. And then the focus was to kind of like style it, make it look nice, make it make the design serve the actual information better. Right. Um, not just prettying it up, I should say. Yeah. Um, and I kind of like went down a couple wrong roads with, uh, with ShortStat 2. The original ShortStat uses a single database, a single 
table database design, where every hit just goes into one table, and each bit of information that you record about the visit is in a separate column in that table. And this worked out great because a stats package is an insert-intensive application. And so you want your inserts to be fast. You don't want to be querying a bunch of tables and stuff and then inserting based on that. And the problem it had was there was nothing to stop this database from just growing and growing and growing. (laughs) So depending on the popularity of your site, you could really do some damage to your database server just by (laughs) running it for a certain amount of time. To address that, um, I ended up breaking up each bit of information into its own table and only inserting it once so that there was no redundant information, basically normalized the database. And with all the different uh, features that I had added to the new short stat too, I ended up having 18 different tables, like one of them just being a table that contained references to all the other tables. Basically what happened was it was no longer really snappy on the insert, so every time you wanted to record a hit, you'd have to query those 17 tables Mm-hmm. see if the value that you were going to be adding was already there. If it was, increment it and get its ID, and then plug it into the column in the general lookup table. And then if not, you had to add it. So you had to do one query to select to see if it was there on each of those 17 tables, and then do an action dependent on that, a different action dependent on that. So then you've got 34 queries. Then you got an initial one, a 35th one, to add the, the individual visit. Uh, John Hicks was beta testing, and I, I'd get like an email from his... Uh, his support like every day saying, you know, <laughs> you're crushing our server. <laughs> so it was back to the, the drawing board with Mint. And really I, what I, we ended up doing was going back to the single table design and just building in a way to have Mint maintain the database size to keep it at a useful level. Um, and there's just two options. You can do it by the actual, like a, a given uh, window of time. Mm-hmm. The default is five weeks, which is usually good for most people. Right. And then for something... Uh, where maybe you get like 40,000 uniques a day, there you can actually limit it to a specific database size. And that kicks in before the weekly thing. So say you have only three weeks of data and you set your database size to be 25 megs, which is probably ideal for Mint, right. and you hit up against that 25 megs, it's not going to record anymore. It's not going to keep more than that. <clears throat> One of the, the big issues with that was you're no longer recording all this information, so you can't just do a count on unique IP addresses to get the total visits and the unique visits and everything. So I actually store that information, aggregate it in a separate array that's stored as part of like a config variable. Uh, okay. Just stored separately from all that visit data. One of the things that people often do when they install them into a mistake is they set that expiry window to something like 120 weeks, Ooh. and then they set the database size to zero, which means that it doesn't maintain, it doesn't moderate the database size based on size alone. <laughs> And after a few weeks of use, like, Mint starts to slow down, and then, like, a few more weeks, it gets really unresponsive, and then, like, a couple more weeks later, it just stops responding entirely. Hits are still being recorded, mm-hmm. but because it's an insert-intensive application, no index is being done, so you take a hit on the display end for speed on the front end so it doesn't slow down your site and everything. And eventually, once you get all that data, there's no index to work from to select that data. And so a lot of people come, and, and I'll go, and there's, like, certain things that I can do to look at certain configuration va- values, nothing sensitive, like password or email or anything. And I can see, like, how they have that setting configured, and I can say, oh, you should just, you know, reduce this and then refresh, and it should be snappy again. Cool. You made the choice to release Mint as actually a, uh, a package that people have to install on their own sites as mm-hmm. opposed to a web service. Um, can you tell us about that decision and how that's actually impacted? Sure. I think... For myself personally, I was never really happy with the services where you put like a JavaScript bug on your site from somebody else's server 
because you then become dependent on that JavaScript loading to track the hits. You depend on their servers being up, and you depend on there being no network congestion between the user and your site and the user and the, the host of the stats provider's site. A lot of times, I actually played with Google Analytics for a bit, and when it first launched, and my site would just like stop loading because their server would go down or they'd have too many requests or something, and it would stop my site from loading. So I like to have all that stuff on my own servers, and so I can know what's going. Yeah, but you've been dealing with piracy issues since you've released Mint mm-hmm. as a package, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's, I think I kind of got a little alarmist about it when uh, somebody sent me a link to a torrent file. And you can get info in the torrent file, and it had been downloaded 4,000 times by the time that you know I saw it. Because it's, it's a small file. It's like wow. 125K. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it's just like, oh, Mint, yeah, sure. And they got it like, you know, in a second, you can probably download it <laughs> right. over yeah, high, yeah, I'm sure. high bandwidth. And so, like, you look at that, and it's 40,000 times $30. It's $12,000. But and, and that was, like, what my initial reaction. But then you realize that the people pirating it aren't really going to pay for it anyways. They weren't going to be customers. Yeah. And so... I posted about it on my site, and I think like that's actually been a, quite a bit of a turn, deterrent, just people knowing that I'm aware that it's going on. Right. Um, in order to run Mint on your server, you have to activate it with a, a license key you get when you purchase it, right. and that checks with my server to make sure. And so, like, if you're just goofing off and like you type in like I'm pirating Mint as your activation key, like <laughs> it still comes to my server, and I still have all the information that would be provided if you were installing it. Uh, okay. So, and then some people have hacked it so that it doesn't actually hit my server, but they still can't activate it. Did you use like the Zend encoder for, on the PHP or anything? I didn't. I've actually um, I've looked into some PHP applications that require that, and it's, it's always just been a hassle whether the host doesn't offer the plugin, the Apache module that yeah. you know enables you to run that encoder. Or if there is a problem with the application, you can't do anything about it because it's encoded. One of the things that made ShortStack really strong was its openness and that people could, you know, point out my mistakes and suggest corrections. It also would become like, it'd just be an additional step in maintaining Mint. Mm-hmm. Every time that I wanted to update it, I would have to, you know, get the fresh copy and then encode it and then zip it up. And it's just one extra step. And it always seemed to be, you know, more trouble than it's worth. And there's more benefits to it being open source, mm-hmm. not as in free, but open as in... Human readable, yeah. yeah. We actually run Mint on uh, Web 2.0 show. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> we like it. We're junkies. Yeah. Nice, nice. <laughs> Have you guys gotten the Confabulator widget? Yeah, no. somebody went and imported the one that I made for the, the Mac OS X dashboard oh, into nice. Confabulator. Nice. And they actually expanded on it. I think they actually have a little um, disclosure triangle that reveals a list of like the most recent refers, kind of like the Shortstat widget that um, Nubik Studios very cool. Yeah. Let's check that out. Yeah. You created an API for Mint Mm -hmm. uh, called Peppers that people can, you know, create their own kind of stats package. Like we use one for FeedBurner Mm -hmm. to pull over our FeedBurner stats. Do you feel like that was a good idea? Do you think that helped the growth of Mint or? I I think that that's been a huge factor in in Mint's growth. Funny enough, when I launched Mint, the API wasn't finished. It was just kind of like it was in kind of less object-oriented code than it currently is. And it wasn't documented, and I told people, you know, it wasn't finished. It was just, like, me trying to feel out what functionality was going to be required for people to build new Pepper. And one of the things, when I was developing it, like, I realized I did a poll back when I was still working after I initially dropped um, Shortstat 2 
from development. And I ask people, you know, what, I just want to get back to it, you know, what are the core features that you want in a stats application? And it came back, um, hits, refers, what pages people are looking at, and what search terms are leading them to their site. Um, and so I told them to pick, you know, their top three. And out of all that, um, those were like the, the four that were really prominent. And the search terms are kind of like tied to refers. So I was happy to add four features in as a base thing. And in order to really get a good idea of what extensions to Mint were going to require, I actually built the core functionality as a, as a plugin. So if you were to, you can't do this um, without forcibly just deleting the default pepper from your server. If you were to remove all pepper from your Mint installation, all it would record is a unique ID for the event of a visit and the date and time it happened. And so it ended up being really interesting. I think it really facilitated development for Pepper developers. When I launched it, within a day, there was a new Pepper available. I think it was uh, by since1968.com, I think it was either a country or a language Pepper. And then like a day later, he had posted two articles of the two-part series on how to develop a Pepper for Mint with this unfinished API. Nice. And just like right out the gate, people started developing Pepper for it. And what was interesting is that every time somebody released a new Pepper, it improved the, it improved the, the features that were provided to the entire user base, but it also created more interest in Mint because it's one more person talking about it who has their own audience. And I don't know that it was like a conscious, like, this is going to be a good marketing tool, but it ended up being like a really great, Great thing in that cool. respect, yeah. yeah. And the same thing with the Easter egg that's hidden in Mint. Um, oh, you don't know about the Easter egg? No. You guys are uh, old school Nintendo fans, like Absolutely. Contra? Yeah. Contra, yeah. you know the Konami code? Yeah. Type that in Mint. I, yeah, I'm dead serious. Uh, with the arrow keys and the, the letter keys, so up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, B-A. Just type oh. it. Yeah, don't don't just go to the page and type. What does it mean? Up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, B-A. Uh, it's hidden down there in the bottom. Stand tested, stand approved. Very nice. Mr. Santa Maria. <laughs> um, and that was great because, you know, the beta testers kind of knew about it. We were kind of joking around. A month after Mint came out, somebody else found it. And it was a whole other wave of interest in Mint because it was like this little hidden feature thing. It was kind of cool because it's like, it's kind of like old school and you, you think back to like goofing off with your friends and sitting right. too close to the TV and right. <laughs> <laughs> cheating at video games. That's funny stuff. To switch gears here, mm -hmm. you do a lot of web design stuff. What do you use for inspiration? Where do you come up with color choices, typography choices? I, I guess delve into that a little bit. Um, on my personal site, it was kind of just a decision I made um, back when I was in school. We had to design a personal logo and do business cards, and I kind of like just picked a you know minimal black, white, and red kind of like typographers' colors because I was really interested in typography, and then. I haven't really strayed too far from that. I mean, a lot of my personal stuff, usually client work will uh, determine, they'll determine the color scheme. But for my personal things, I, I tend to go to the less vibrant colors. I definitely go more saturated. Right. A lot of times I'll find uh, just an image, a photo that I've taken, open up in Photoshop and maybe like save it out as a GIF and then reduce the colors down to like, you know, 16 colors and then just pick and choose from those. With Mint, the whole idea, with Mint, I kind of took like the Apple approach with the iPod Shuffle in that they took a limitation of it, the fact that it doesn't have a screen, mm -hmm. and turned it into a feature, the fact that, you know, it was Shuffle, life is random. Right. And with Mint, the limitation was that you weren't keeping all of that old data. You're keeping an aggregated look at it. And so 
because you weren't keeping all that old data, it was always a fresh look at your site. And so that's actually where the name Mint came from. And then mm-hmm. you went with Mint, you got to go with Green. Right. And so um, <clears throat> generally, I mean, I don't really have a place where I go for uh, for color choices. A lot of people will say, you know, don't look for design inspiration for web design on the web. you got to look outside. Right. And I, I tend to agree with that. I take a lot of photographs. And I have a Flickr Pro account, but I don't really post them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I noticed and, that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> And so, and like I say, it kind of just comes from everywhere. Yeah. Just, um, you know, whatever hap- whatever's happening on TV or just like in the neighborhood around you just mm. rubs off. Interesting. Yeah. What about typography? Um, what, what do you mean? Uh, like when you're choosing fonts mm-hmm. or um, font sizes. I know a lot of people are big into, you know, to place emphasis, use a bigger font size mm-hmm. for you versus there. Um, I guess when it comes to font selection, Again, I, I kind of limit myself intentionally. Back in the, the old school days with graphic design and everything, uh, somebody would take like two or three typefaces and just make build their career on them, learn how to use them properly. Right. And I, I kind of subscribe to that um, pretty much. Anytime I give a presentation or post my slides from a presentation online, I always get asked, what typeface are you using? And almost always, without fail, it's FFDIN. Either it's light or bold or heavy or black or something. Right. I just feel it's good to, to know your stuff and to to specialize while well, still being you know, you know knowing your tools and knowing how to work with them and not trying to pull in too many different options because you'll you'll end up being overwhelmed and you won't be as as familiar with the shortcomings of a particular typeface. Okay, <laughs> good stuff to know. Cool. Okay. Now you said you you work mostly alone mm-hmm. when you're doing design work or uh, development work. Do you have you worked in teams? I know you, you gave a presentation on working in a team. Here yeah, in yeah. Um, I have. A, I used to work at a company called Silverpoint that does websites for schools. Okay. They do. They basically have like a really great process where they have a project manager, a designer, a producer, and then a developer that integrates their software tools into the produced code. And I find that I'm kind of a, a jack of all trades, master of none, and so I can I can really work. Either way, um, the, the holistic web design panel was excellent. I mean, it was a great team, and everyone, everyone was aware. Everyone had at least a general, uh, general experience in each of the proficiencies that everybody was. One person was more specialized in, so brought a lot to the team. So I mean, there's depending on who you're working with, different approaches right. work out. Cool. All right. Well, I guess that's uh, that. About wraps up the show. All thanks right. for uh, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. All right, <laughs> cool. This has been a Steel Pixel production. For more information about Steel Pixel, you can check out steelpixel.com. Or for more information about the show, feel free to check out web20show.com. That's W-E-B-2-0-S-H-O-W.com.